You're listening to the TheoEd Podcast with your host, Janine Warrington. In our Big Ideas episodes, we have conversations with TheoEd speakers and dive deeper into the big ideas they presented in their TheoEd talks. On today's Big Ideas episode, we welcome Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ and author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. His TheoEd talk, By Any Greens Necessary, challenges listeners to find imaginative solutions for community development. Today, we discuss chaos, gratitude, imagination, and interfaith spirituality. Welcome, Pastor Moss. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Before we dive into discussing your TheoEd talk, I want to take a moment to highlight your new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. It's been described to me as a life-affirming guide to the practical, political, and spiritual challenges of our day. And in it, you invite readers to engage with many different spiritual practices and to work on combining justice with love. Why write this book and why does the world need it right now? First of all, thank you for having me on the program. Uh, the, the book is really a culmination of, of several things. The, what I call the spiritual itch. We have been searching for a solution to internal uh, problems in an external way. Uh, whether you're talking politically, uh, you're talking about uh, the conflicts that we see in our community and across across the world. These are some spiritual problems, problems that deal with love and problems that deal with justice. And we have to look inward. And Howard Thurman puts it this way. He says, you can change the material. You can have economic power. But if your soul is anemic, then there is no true liberation. And so I've written this book to talk about what is true liberation by merging love and justice and regaining the Kingian tradition of the idea of the beloved community. Hmm. I wonder how, uh, I think a lot of folks would say doing spiritual change probably would take a lot longer than material change. Um, how would you address that? Why is it worth spending the time to change internal situations before focusing on external? Well, it's not one or the other, it's both and. Hmm. That you, the spiritual demands, the internal demands, uh, should shift and alter the manner in which you operate with your external demands. So I will give the example of, of Dr. King. Dr. King was saying that it's both and. That if we seek a beloved community, if we're seeking voter rights, but at the same time, who are we as human beings? Hmm. So will we seek voter rights solely just for the sake of power? Or do we seek voting rights to transform our community and know that we are flawed as human beings? So it's always a both and. It's, they're never pitted against each other. They're deeply connected. That's a really helpful word to hold for those of us who are doing community change to remember, why are we doing this? What's the point? Absolutely. I encourage our listeners to read your book because it is filled with lots of deep riches and challenges on how to do exactly what you're talking about, the spiritual changes internally. Um, for our conversation today, I want to lift up one of the spiritual challenges that you present in it. 
Um, so the second chapter of your book is called Consecrate Your Chaos. And in it, you invite readers to, in a moment of chaos and confusion, pause just long enough to gain a clearer perspective on the world around them. And this pause can allow us to make a better informed decision about what to do in that situation, or it can create a space to appreciate the good that is present in that chaos. This chapter stands out to me because I actually use the word chaos frequently to describe moments or hours or days in my life. And it can be really difficult to pause in those moments. So would you lift up to our listeners a bit about your experiences with chaos in your own life and how you create space for clarity and gratitude? Yeah, thank you for that, because that's actually one of my favorite chapters, because it begins with the story of my, my children and the chaos they created in our basement one time. And here I am as this, uh, being a father and not realizing what they had actually done. Why I saw a mess. They were attempting to create some art in the process. Uh, my, my son, my daughter, and their, their dog. And it re I realized that if I had paused enough, I would have been able to see the art, the beauty, and uh, the love uh, that was operating in the chaos of the basement. The idea of, of chaos is consistent. And one of the things that we have to learn as human beings is this idea of pausing so that we can find a method or a pathway in reference to that chaos. I use the example of, of sailing, uh, that there are certain laws in reference to sailing that you've got to operate with in order to deal with the chaos as you are on the sea. One of the spiritual teachers who I, I, I love very much, I don't have a piece in the book specifically around him, is a person by the name of Thelonious Monk. And Thelonious Monk understands this idea of chaos. He states that in order to create music, it's never in the notes. It's learning how to pause. It's the mm -hmm. pause. It's the space that actually creates the music. And he said, if you apply that to your life, whether it is through prayer or through meditation or learning silence, that's when you can begin to find the pathways in the midst of chaos. We see this in, in basketball, a great basketball player, whether it's Allen Iverson, uh, whether it's LeBron James, Stephen Curry, Michael Jordan, or Magic Johnson. The person who is the point guard, uh, the gift that they learn is they slow down the game in their mind. They learn how to pause and see multiple opportunities uh, as they are going down the court. To us, it looks like complete chaos. To them, just in a split second, because they have practiced over and over again to learn how to, in the midst of the game, in the midst of that dribble, to learn how to pause. Muhammad Ali used to do this all the time when he was fighting his opponents not just in the corner, but while he was throwing a punch. He would turn, put up both of his arms as a guard, and that was the pause moment where he was going to find a pathway to knock out his opponent. Uh, his opponent. Then he would get to the uh, corner, and his corner man would communicate with him saying, did you see it? And then he would make his way back into the ring. Learning the power of pause. And then as a person who's a pastor, Jesus does pauses all the time. You know, um, let me draw away from the community mm -hmm. in order to pause for the next action in the work that I'm about to do. Within the Jewish tradition, you have this idea of pausing. 
And even when we play, as I mentioned, playing music, we've got to learn the power of the pause, the silence, the meditation, the prayer. And that's when we can see new ways to operate within the chaos. For our listeners who might find all of these uh, examples and images really appealing and convicting, but don't know how to do that, what practical advice would you give to us who want to be able to pause in chaos, but don't know how? Well, one, I believe that when you wake up in the morning is to learn the power of gratitude and to be thankful for the simple things. Then there is a time where you are silent. Howard Thurman is very, very uh, important in reference to this idea of silence. To be silent, to breathe, and depending upon your tradition, my tradition comes out of the African-American church tradition, uh, then the meditation around a particular scripture, that's just to begin your day. Throughout your day, being present enough to witness things that you normally do not take notice of. Mm-hmm. And that's why people who work with children, they, they, they do this naturally after a while. Because kids will do things. For example, a kid, one of the greatest gifts you can give a child is a box. I'm talking like a refrigerator box. I mean, they can turn it into anything. I mean, they, they use their imagination. And the child is pausing to say, you know what? Because I used to love it when my kids would do it. And it's like, hey, dad, come on, get in the car. Like, okay, we're going to get in the car. The car was a refrigerator box. And so I walk out and come back in. I was like, let's get in the car. And like, what are you talking about, dad? It's a rocket ship. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. It's a rocket ship, man. (laughs) Um, Then you leave again. You come back. He said, no, 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 dad, it's an airplane. And they are shifting. And if you are not present, if you are not pausing with them, you miss this beautiful moment of imagination. And that's what pausing causes us to do, mm-hmm. to use our imagination, to see a new path. For example, someone who walks through the woods or people who are rock climbers or people who ride bikes or run or whatever particular athletic action that someone takes, there is a moment in which your mind and your spirit begin to, to work in unison and things begin to slow down. and You can see things that you normally would not see when you are so focused in a very hectic way uh, of how, how your day may be beginning or how your day is going. Pause is a pathway to power. Lifting up imagination there also brings up, you've, you emphasize the importance of imagination in your Theoed talk as well um, in sort of a different application. Um, you emphasize moral artistry when it comes to community transformation, finding creative ways to make positive impacts through every part of a community development project. So for example, um, utilizing green techniques in a building renovation or hiring incarcerated individuals to do the work, both of which your church has done in the past. Um, It's an incredible and inspiring story to hear you talk about in your talk. And I'm sure that many of our listeners want to employ similar strategies in their own projects. So my question for you is, How much time do we spend imagining and brainstorming these creative ideas? And at what point do we shift towards taking steps toward achieving the change? Where's the balance between imagining and doing? That's that's a great question. I I believe, well, let let me back up. 
Einstein, I believe, once said that he would rather have imagination over genius. Because a genius can figure out numbers, but has no idea how to apply them. Hmm. And it is through imagination that we are able to create and design possibilities to some of life's greatest problems. We do this consistently. It's not imagination here, action here. It's in process. I'll give you one of my favorite stories, my jazz stories, I, one of my favorite jazz stories around Wynton Marcellus. Wynton Marcellus was going through a kind of a jazz slump, a musical slump. And I believe he was playing at the Village Vanguard and one of the writers from the Atlantic magazine uh, was present uh, to review uh, the concert. And Wynton Marcellus, I believe, was playing one of his standards, Cherokee, and was hitting this solo, killing it. I mean, straight killing the solo. And as he's playing the solo, Village Vanguard is a very small jazz club. Somebody's cell phone goes off on the front row, destroys everything. And everybody's like, oh my gosh. And the writer from the Atlantic writes on a napkin, magic gone. But then all of a sudden, they hear Marcellus playing the tone of the cell phone. So literally, he is playing the sound of the cell phone. And people begin to laugh. And they're engaged again. And then he comes all the way back to the solo. The writer says this might have been the greatest improvisational solo he has ever heard in his life. What did Marcellus do? It was improvisation, yes, but he was utilizing his imagination in the moment. How was he able to use his imagination? Because he was consistently practicing the use of his imagination. So a jazz musician is always practicing the chords with the possibility that something new might come up in the moment. The basketball player, the soccer player does the same thing. I practice all of the chords, how to dribble, how to pass, how to shoot, with the possibility that something unique may come up in the process. And as the preacher, when you hear Dr. King preach, Dr. King was using the same techniques of imagination. His greatest or most well-known sermon, I should say, I have a dream. We've all heard it. We've all heard the, the close. I have a dream. That was created in the moment. That was not written on paper. The truth of the matter is he was remembering a prayer by a minister by the name of Reverend Prathia Hall, who was a part of the SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in Albany, Georgia, where she prayed and talked about, I have a dream. As he's closing, he wanted to critique white supremacy and lift up the beloved community at the same time. And most people miss this. Most Northerners who, who were white missed completely what he was saying. And black people were going absolutely nuts when he was saying this. He said, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain. Now, most people would say, well, that's nice. Stone Mountain, that's nice imagery. No. Stone Mountain is the largest Confederate monument in the United States. Stone Mountain was the home of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. 
Dr. King was saying, let freedom ring. In other words, there will be a day where there will be no Klan. And people were going nuts. Then he says, let freedom ring. I have a dream that there one day in the Smoky Mountains, guess what? Smoky Mountains, home of the KKK again. So he's going through geographically all of this off the top of his head, like a great hip hop artist doing freestyle. He is sharing with us that we're going to wipe out this hate and this white supremacy, and then we're going to create a new nation that is not yet. That, to me, is the use of imagination in a way that is on another level of, of understanding. It's spiritual. It's practical. It's political. It's policy. It's aspirational all at once. So imagination happens consistently, and we have to use our imagination on a consistent basis. That's why it's important for us to learn play and the holy aspect of play. That's why it's important to learn storytelling and comedy, creation of food. Food also has this idea of imagination. Some of the great dishes, no one ever said, we're going to plan and do this. No, it was an accident. Something called gumbo, <laughs> the creation of people of African descent taking what was left to say that there, you can have no more food, there are not enough calories, and a mother saying, give me a piece of rice and a piece of tomato and a piece of shrimp and a piece of pork. I'm going to stir it all together in a little iron pot and serve you gumbo. And now Wolfgang Puck serves it for like $25 a bowl. Uh, but nonetheless, it was the utilization of the power of imagination, which must be consistent. Learning that holy play, in the words of uh, Kirk Byron Jones, uh, learning how to pause and being present in a moment so that we can see other possibilities. I love these examples that you've lifted up for a couple of reasons. One, they fit perfectly with our earlier discussion of consecrating chaos. Like the phone going off could have been considered chaos. And in that moment, it was transformed into something much more and something very beautiful. So we have the pausing and the gratitude and the imagination are all a part of that um, in the way we relate to the chaos around us. Uh, and secondly, these examples show how like the imagining and the doing happen simultaneously. Like sometimes we have to just try something and see what happens, and then we can imagine or improv with it and play with it moving forward. Like if we just sit and brainstorm and imagine things, we might not come up with the the same level of imaginative solutions that we might come up with if we're doing it on, on our feet. If we're throwing new ingredients into the gumbo pot, it's yes, going to come out differently yes. than if we just sit down and try to write a recipe. Yeah, you know, We have to be willing to fail. That's the beauty of imagination. And, and we lose that as, as adults. We, we encourage our children, go ahead, it's all right, it's okay. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things about the, the black church, that one of the spiritual traditions within the black church is the idea of affirmation for children. I'm a product of that. I, I'm the one who stood up for the Christmas play and messed it up. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Mother Williams said, baby, that's all right. You did a wonderful job. I got some butterscotch candy for you afterwards. You know, I mean, she, she was there 
to say your failure is actually a triumph because you had the courage to try. Mm. And that's where we need to, to, to really affirm and develop that muscle again, to affirm the idea, the courage to try. That is a good word. I'm going to take a little bit of a, a turn in our conversation now. In your Theoed talk, you start by talking about Malcolm X and his Muslim beliefs. Um, in your new book, you reference many global spiritual traditions, including Buddhism, Yoruba religion. Early in our conversation just now, you referenced Jewish tradition. As a Christian minister, why do you draw on all of these other faith traditions? We are one, an amalgamation of these traditions. Now, it's very fascinating to me in, in, in the American context. People who are followers of Jesus forget he's Jewish. <laughs> it's like this obvious thing. Jesus is a Jew, okay? And so we forget that we are Judeo-Christian. And then within this American modern context, we forget that the Abrahamic religions have a common ancestor, yeah, Abraham, that means Jewish, Muslim, and Christian. But then I, I am a, uh, very much a disciple of, of Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman talks about the fact in his book, The Search for Common Ground, that we have created uh, material ideologies, uh, and he's talking about different political ideas, uh, that attempt to bring unity but do not. He believed when he made his trip to India and had a conversation with Mohandas Gandhi in 1936 that there is at the root of our spiritual traditions this idea of human flourishing. Whether you are secular and you operate out of a stoic tradition of the good life, whether you are Buddhist, Yoruba, or you are functioning out of the Hindu tradition, Muslim, Christian, there is this, this kernel of an idea. And he believed that if we can, if we live out our faith traditions with authenticity at its root, that we can create a revolution that cuts across all of the quote unquote divides that we have created. And as a person of African descent in America, I am a creolization of a variety of traditions. Hmm. I'm literally living gumbo. I am the expression of jazz music because I'm a person of African descent. And the Christian perspective that I frame is not a Western perspective. It is a, it is a West African and African perspective out of the Christian tradition. It also draws on these other traditions that are brought to bear, that are embedded within the black church tradition. And so my very existence is creolization. And America's salvation is rooted in creolization. The moment that America can face the fact that it is not a symphony, but actually a jazz band, is when we can create the beloved community. Mm. 
And in all of this, you're lifting up a lot of traditions and people groups who are often marginalized. And in your Theo Ed talk, one of your central themes is um, looking within those communities that have been marginalized and letting those be the creative force that will design and create new ways of transformation, new imaginative transformation. So for our listeners who are a part of a marginalized community, whatever that may be, that they want to see some transformation in, how would you encourage them to seek that transformation? Well, one of the things that we we, we did at, at Trinity, we, we made a decision that any type of development that we would do, any type of work that we would do would have three pillars. One, that it would empower the community. And through empowering the community, we would make sure that the contractors and the architects, uh, anyone that is doing the work is from our community, is from this zip code. So we now we're empowering people in the neighborhood. The second aspect was we want to go deeper. So who in our community is marginalized at a high level? Those who are formerly incarcerated returning citizens. So we give them priority in terms of the work. So now it's in our community, in our particular zip code. Now, then the second tier is we're utilizing people who are returning citizens. The third tier is creation care. That are we, we're utilizing green techniques in the work, in the development work. So whether we're building a house, renovating our church, the renovation of our library, or the urban community that we're creating about a mile from down the street from the church uses those principles. There's nothing wrong with any community making itself a priority. If I'm on a reservation, I would expect that the indigenous community will prioritize itself. They should be a priority. And then you can begin to build tiers around that. For example, the most oppressed group across the globe are children. So they don't have voices. They don't have a Congress, a lobby, or they don't have representatives at the UN. They are dependent upon adults to make decisions that hopefully will be life-affirming. So, so every community can make children a priority mm. to make sure that they are educated and housed and fed and affirmed out of their own particular cultural context. We judge a nation not by its wealth, but we judge a nation by how it treats its children. We judge a nation how you, by how you treat the poorest of the poor. And every spiritual tradition raises the question about how you treat those who are marginalized. Whatever tradition you are, you are a part of, whether it's an Eastern tradition about alleviating suffering, whether it is a Hindu tradition of ahimsa, talking about nonviolence, or the Christian tradition of talking about the idea of agape, or the Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, to repair the breach. Every tradition raises the question about the idea of the marginalized, and we have to return to that. Pastor Moss, thank you so much for lifting up all of these 
ways to engage our individual and communal spirituality as we seek to make the world a better place. For listeners who want to engage more with these ideas, I encourage I encourage you all to read Dancing in the Darkness. It is released on January 3rd. Thank you so much for joining us today, Pastor Moss. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. We hope this conversation has sparked some big ideas in our listeners. If you have suggestions for future TheoEd brief talks or big ideas episodes, visit our website at theoed.com to submit your suggestions.